You are listening to episode 25 of Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 59, Greenfield's Orbital, March 6, 2373. The Orbital's business directory yielded only one restaurant featuring Oriental cuisine, and after reviewing the offerings, I decided I would be cooking. While I was looking things up, I checked the chief's orders for spares to see how many of the lighting panels he'd ordered. It distressed me to learn that the answer was none. Believing that I'd made a mistake, I backtracked through our last three stops looking for spares orders. I found none. A cold feeling washed down my back and settled in the pit of my stomach. I pulled up the ship's spares inventory to check scrubber filters. We were supposed to have up to 32, allowing for four full swap-outs of the eight filters. In practice, it was enough for almost three months. The inventory showed we had 28, the same number I had set it to after doing the half-scrubber swap on 10-volt. He should have used at least a few more since then, but if he had, then the inventory was wrong. I counted on my fingers and thought he should have used at least eight, maybe as many as twelve. Scrubbers were funny, and you had to keep an eye on them to make sure they didn't get ahead of you. While I was there, I checked the lighting panel inventory and found it full. I was left trying to decide if he bought them with his own money, had not used any from our original order, or just never updated the inventories after he had. I had seen the evidence that he had replaced some of them. I got a very bad feeling. I pulled up all of the chief's chandlery orders. His orders consisted of a few tools, a bundle of wipes, and a couple of cans of cleaning solvent. There have been times in my life when I've been scared, frightened for my life even. That was the first time I felt absolute horror that, through my actions, somebody might die. I sat there for about a dozen heartbeats before I started slapping keys to bring up the engineering displays showing fuel and water tankage. Our water tank stood at 15%. It was enough for another few weeks underway. It was probably enough to get back to Diurnia, what with the recycling and filtering we did, maybe even another port beyond that. Fuel reserves were at 1%. It would have been enough to get us started, but it wasn't even enough to kick us out to the safety limit to raise sails. Worse, the volatiles that powered our maneuvering thrusters were nearly as bad, showing a bare 5%. I wasted no more time and keyed the order for tankage with the chandlery immediately and released it. The fittings were all in place. They locked on when we docked. It only required the fill order and a payment account to begin feeding the ship. When the order acknowledgement came back, I began to breathe again. I watched until the flow status indicator clicked up and water, fuel, and volatiles began streaming into the empty tanks. Spares, I muttered, and left the cabin heading for engineering stores. I brought up the store's inventory on my tablet and went to the scrubber filter bin. I found twelve filters, and that made a certain amount of sense if we replaced all the filters instead of just half of them and had done it twice. It would have left a dozen. It was enough to get us to port anywhere, but an inefficient use of the scrubber. I updated the number in inventory and went to find the lighting panels. There were none left, so I zeroed that one. I spot-checked some other items, but we hadn't used much of anything that I could see only the items I had specifically ordered him to fix. I ran the store's replenishment routine to generate an order and added a simple toolkit. I needed screwdrivers and wrenches of my own if I were going to make any headway. I was through counting on my chief. Given my preferences, I would have put him ashore in Greenfields, 
but I had booked passengers and cargo for Diurnia, and I couldn't afford to wait to find a new engineer. All I could do was try to keep an eye on him and try to keep the ship together until we made it back to home port. Back in my cabin, I ran up the documentation on the main engineering components, quickly reviewing the maintenance requirements for sail generators, fuse actors, grav generators, and the rest. The maintenance clocks all looked right, based on what I could see, which left only one problem left to track down. The tank levels were low enough that I should have had an error. The bridge repeaters should have triggered when fuel and volatiles dropped below 10%. I had an uneasy feeling that I knew the cause. I checked the new communications bus, but the channels were live there, just not getting any signals. I dug deeper into the main system's bus processors and managed to access the sensor channel directly. I breathed a bit easier when I discovered that the channel wasn't live either. My fear was that in substituting the new communication subsystem board, I had inadvertently cut the alarm channels. With the main bus showing no alarms, there wasn't anything for the communications board to pass on, so no source alarm. I headed back to engineering and, with the help of the sensor schematics, managed to find the main alarm switch panel. Before I tested it, I brought up the alarm suite on the engineering console and made sure there weren't any alarms. I triggered the test for each alarm in turn, watching the screen as one after another they triggered and went off again as I enabled and disabled each test. When I got to fuel, the test triggered on, but didn't go off when I reset the test circuit, correctly indicating a 2% fuel level. The volatile sensor did the same thing, coming up on test but dropping into a valid alarm state when I reset the test circuit. I shook my head and kept testing alarms. All of the ship sensors triggered correctly, and the only two I knew about failed to reset. The engineering seat creaked once when I dropped into it, the strength draining out of my knees. Without maneuvering jets or auxiliary fuel, we might have easily crashed into the side of the orbital or another ship. Without enough spares for the scrubbers, we might have suffocated before we made it back to port. If something had gone wrong, we might have been stuck in the deep dark, running out of water, running out of air. I shuddered at the thought. The chrono clicked over to 1630, and I headed for the galley. I had a lot of thinking to do, and cooking seemed like a good way to get it done. When I got to the galley, I didn't know what I would fix. I kept thinking about the ship and the dangers. The knowledge that I had failed weighed heavily on me and I didn't like it. I went back into the freezers and came back with a pair of steaks. The thought of a simple steak and baked potato dinner appealed to me, perhaps with a side salad of fresh greens and a grand apple cobbler for dessert. I checked the freezer and smiled at the array of ice cream. Menu planned, my mind wandered over the various aspects of the problem while my hands tended to the little tasks surrounding dinner prep. I set the potatoes to bake and went looking for some grand apples for cobbler. My first and overwhelming problem centered around being the captain. It was my responsibility to make sure the ship was safe. I had let us get underway without checking the tankage. We'd sailed around the quadrant for two and a half months without testing the alarm circuits. That should have been a priority when I first got the ship, and again when I replaced the communication subsystem. I had really dropped the ball. The cobbler went together without a thought. A fast mixture of fruit, juice, and a bit of cornstarch and sugar went into the bottom of a loaf pan. I topped it with a fast flour batter to crust it. It was in the oven in less than five ticks, and I hoped I'd not forgotten anything serious even as I closed the door on it. I couldn't remember even making it. The steaks thawed quickly in the microwave, warming just slightly to the touch. I rubbed them with salt, pepper, and a bit of crushed garlic before setting them aside to rest before cooking while I peeled a couple of onions and chopped some mushrooms. 
As the flood of anger with myself receded, I was able to put aside the self-recriminations and focus on the larger picture. I began to ponder what I needed to make sure that it never happened again. So much had gone wrong, and almost all of it in the engineering areas of the ship. Tankage, maintenance, spares, all tasks that needed to be in the hands of a trusted chief engineer. My failure had been one of supervision. The base problem rested with Chief Bailey. Ms. Maloney had the right of it. Greta Gearhart had spoiled me. A pang of something, longing, regret, loneliness, stabbed through me at the memory of her sapphire-laced smiles. Under that smile I knew lay a rock-solid layer of dependability. Once I got to know her, I never once doubted what she said or questioned one of her requests. I sighed and tossed the onions into a sauté pan with a bit of butter to caramelize, stirring them around with a wooden spoon. The smell permeated the galley as they cooked up. I added the chopped mushrooms, shaking and scraping the pan, keeping the ingredients moving even as my thoughts spiraled. Chief Bailey made me crazy. Between the backwater patois, the lack of responsiveness in his operational area, even in the face of direct orders, and his apparent incompetence triggered something in me that made me want to scream and blocked rational thought. Was he incompetent? Or did I just think he was because he aggravated me so? I slipped the onions and mushrooms into a warm plate and heated the pan up until it practically smoked. The steaks went right onto the hot metal and immediately stuck. I left them there, periodically poking them with a pair of tongs until they cooked free and I was able to flip them over. I repeated the process, letting them sear on both sides, and when the second side cooked free of the metal, I slipped the whole pan under a hot broiler and set the timer for six ticks. The facts about the chief seemed damning. He'd not done the tasks that I specifically assigned him to do. He'd reported on multiple occasions that he'd topped off the tanks, but he'd never done it. The empty state of the tanks and the lack of purchasing records to substantiate his report constituted evidence. His performance with the scrubbers and replacing all the filters when he should have only replaced half of them argued that he didn't really have the knowledge that I needed for the ship. His failure to maintain his inventory counts constituted a certain level of either misunderstanding or incompetence. Without an accurate count of our inventories, the replenishment orders couldn't calculate how much we needed to get. We ran the risk of getting underway without the necessary stores to complete the trip. While the steaks broiled, I grabbed a pair of wooden salad bowls. I tossed a few rough handfuls of greens into each, sliced a big tomato across the top, and added a few scrapes of a hard cheese. The vinaigrette was only a few ingredients and a whisk away from completion. Balsamic vinegar and a rich oil forming an emulsion that would not stand up for long, but which I could reconstitute at will. The timer dinged, and I grabbed a side towel to use as a pot holder. I fished the sauté pan out from under the broiler and tossed the mushroom and onion mix into the pan with the steaks before clapping a lid on to keep in the heat. I sighed wondering how Ms. Maloney would take it. The chief needed to go. I didn't trust him, and he lacked the requisite skill set needed for the level of engineer the ship required. He might be a perfectly good chief engineer, but if I couldn't trust him, he was a problem I needed to remove. I pulled down a pair of plates and set about plating dinner. The baked potatoes came out first, and I carved a rough X into the top of each with the tines of a fork and stuffed a small pat of butter into the gap. The sauté pan yielded the steaks, and I split the onions and mushrooms between the two plates. The rich drippings formed a thin sauce that I drizzled across each steak. I put the hot pan on the back of the range top and stood back to admire my handiwork. Ms. Maloney scared the willies out of me when she applauded. Good gods and tiny fishes, Ms. Maloney, how long have you been sitting there? She smirked and shrugged. Half a stand or so. You seemed preoccupied, so I didn't disturb you. She stood and crossed to the counter, looking over the dinner waiting there and nodding with approval. 
I couldn't find a Chinese place that looked good enough to order out from. Sorry about that. She pursed her lips and shook her head. We're spoiled by Jimmy Chin. After him, everything else looks just slightly unappetizing. She smelled the aroma of beef, onion, and mushroom wafting up from the plate. Your technique is very good, Captain. One might think you'd had some training. Only what Cookie taught me back on the Lois, and a few tricks I picked up along the way. Are we ready to eat? She asked, eyeing the plates. I think so. Shall we? In response, she eagerly claimed a plate and bowl of salad and took a seat at the table. I followed suit, and we each ate halfway across our respective plates before speaking. This is where we should have had a bottle of wine, Miss Maloney. Did you order any yet? I looked today, but I didn't see anything I wanted to have in our cellar. The common table wines are poor value, and the high-end wines are only priced at the high end. We need to visit someplace like Martha's Haven, where they make some decent wines and stock up. She glanced up at me for a moment before looking back at her plate. So what did you do this afternoon, Captain? I heard the engine room hatch open and close a lot. I sighed and finished the bite I had in my mouth before answering. I discovered some discrepancies in the ship's engineering status. I spent the afternoon resolving them. She regarded me for a few moments before nodding. Discrepancies, Captain. Inventory's not up to date. Tanks not refilled. Work not actually done. I even found some alarm sensor faults that should never have occurred. That sounds serious, Captain. It is, Ms. Maloney. I examined some of his work, and I found it lacked the level of expertise I need in an engineering officer. She chewed thoughtfully. What will you do, she asked, after swallowing. We need to get back to Diurnia. We've got cargoes and passengers that we've committed delivery for. I'm going to have to spend a lot of the transit time in oversight because I don't think he's competent as a chief engineer. I see. And when we get back to Diurnia? I don't dare risk passengers and crew. We'll have to stay there until I can find a new engineer, and you'll have to decide whether you can continue aboard without him as your bodyguard. I appreciate the advance notice, Captain. She paused. Is he really that bad? At this point, my biggest issue is that I don't feel like I can trust him, and with as small a crew as we have, I don't have the time to double-check everything he says he's done. It could be that I'm not a competent captain, and I'm not managing him correctly. I don't rule that out. The other side of that coin is that I just don't have the luxury of taking the time to figure out how to manage him. Fair or not, it's my ship, and I'm rather biased about who sits in the captain's chair. Can you find another engineer? I don't know, I admitted, scooping out a bit of the potato. I do know that once we get back to Diurnia, I don't dare get underway with him as engineer again. The trip back is giving me cold sweats, even though I think the ship is in better shape now than when we first pulled out of the maintenance dock for our shakedown cruise. She snorted. And doesn't that seem like a long time ago? It does indeed, Miss Maloney. It does indeed. Chapter 60, Greenfield's Orbital, March 7, 2373. The Chandlery promised to deliver my parts and tools first thing in the morning, so I got up early to be ready to go. I found Ms. Arione chatting with Ms. Maloney in the galley when I got there at 0600. You're looking rather sprightly for somebody who's been up most of the night, Miss Arione. She giggled. All night, Captain. I'm just getting in. Ah, I didn't hear the lock. I thought I was just very tired. Did you have fun? She grinned and waggled her eyebrows. Oh, yeah. I poured my coffee and looked at her. You didn't hurt anybody, I hope. One injury per trip, please, and Ms. Maitland here has used up our quota. Not that I know of, Captain. She laughed. She sipped her coffee, and her eyes danced back and forth between Miss Maloney and me. So? 
What did you two kids get up to last night? You had the ship to yourselves. Miss Maloney grinned at her. We did, and it was quite lovely and quiet. She put special emphasis on the word quiet. Miss Arione stuck her tongue out with a matching grin and then asked, So what did you do? The captain cooked for me. Miss Arione made an appreciative ooh sound. Then what? Come on, dish. Miss Maloney grinned. Well, then we got so carried away that afterwards, you know, all warm and comfy with each other, it was magical. She lowered her voice to a purring moan. Before I knew what was happening, I was all wet and slippery, and my choking on my coffee accompanied Miss Arione's shocked look. Miss Maloney snickered. Don't get all excited. I was just washing the dishes. She grinned devilishly at both of us before flourishing the omelet pan. Breakfast, anyone? You brat. Miss Arione said with a giggle. Here I thought our captain had finally come to his senses. Miss Arione, I'm always quite sensible, and you'd be well advised to keep a proper tone of respect toward my august presence. I struck a haughty pose. She laughed at my posturing. Yeah, right. Remind me in a couple of months, Captain. Your august presence is still in March. I turned to Miss Maloney. Do you see what I have to put up with from my crew? I thrust out a hand toward Miss Arione. Do you see? She grinned at me. I see, revered and honored captain. Now, do you want an omelet or what? Oh, yes, please. Onions, peppers, mushrooms, a bit of ham. Do you have some of that bacon and any of that sharp cheddar left? She blinked at me. I'll need extra tools before I can throw in the kitchen sink there, captain. Then she laughed. Coming right up, sir. She turned to Miss Arione. And you, Bunky, what's your pleasure? And just a little cheese on mine, please. I need to get some sleep soon. I can feel it catching up with me. She looked at me over her coffee cup. You won't need me for a couple stands, will you, Skipper? No, I've got stuff to do today. You get some sleep. Perhaps we'll go out to dinner tonight. Miss Maloney shrugged her agreement, and Miss Arione yawned. Sounds good, Skipper. After breakfast, I went back to my cabin and checked on the status of the tanks. They'd top off with a couple stands to spare. I shuddered at what the bill would be, but it couldn't be helped, and it was really no more than the total would have been if we'd filled them as we went along. I took the opportunity to document all that I'd discovered in the captain's log. If push came to shove later, I wanted to have a record of all of it and not have to rely on memory. As I wrapped up the log, the klaxon on the lock sounded. I smiled in satisfaction when the sound didn't lift me half out of my skin for a change. The chrono read 0745. I hoped it was the Chandlery delivery crew getting a jump on their workday and not something like orbital security. I peeked out of the port in the lock and saw a couple of people standing on the dock. They looked chilly. She wore a nice suit, while he dressed like a repairman in an unmarked coverall and carried something in his hand I couldn't identify. I keyed the lock open and stepped out to meet them. The woman stepped up immediately and offered her hand. Hello, I'm Jessica Granby. Are you Captain Ishmael Wong? Behind her, the man had stepped back and brought the device up to his face. I saw he held a portable video unit. I am. How can I help you, Miss Granby? Is it your habit to beat up defenseless passengers and leave them bleeding on the docks, Captain? It's not my habit to leave anybody bleeding on the docks, Miss Granby. May I ask what this is about? She smirked. I take it you haven't seen the news, Captain. No, I haven't. If it wouldn't interfere too much with your ambush, perhaps you'd care to enlighten me. Do you deny that a member of your crew beat up a passenger while in transit from Diurnia? I think you need to check your facts, Miss Granby. There is a report on file with orbital security. That report indicates that medical personnel took a passenger from your vessel on a stretcher, Captain. What do you say to that? One of our passengers required medical assistance on docking. Orbital medical personnel transported him from this vessel on a stretcher. I believe that's all in the report, Miss Granby. 
Do you have any comment on why your passenger required medical assistance, Captain? You'll need to take that up with the passenger, Miss Granby. It's not my practice to discuss my passengers. We did, Captain, and he claims he was beaten and left bleeding on the docks. Do you have any comment? Yes, I do. You can't have it both ways, Miss Granby. Captain? She seemed truly puzzled. Either he was taken off the ship by medical personnel, as you have indicated, which I don't deny, or he was left bleeding on the docks. Those two statements are contradictory. They cannot both be true at the same time. She shook her head. But how do you respond to the charges that one of your passengers was beaten? By asking who is making these charges and on the basis of what information are the charges being leveled, Miss Granby. Behind her, the chandlery crew arrived with my parts order on a grav pallet. One of your passengers claims he was beaten up by a member of your crew, Captain. If this is the same passenger who claims to have been left bleeding on the docks, Miss Granby, then you might do a bit of a credibility check on that passenger. Now, if you'd clear my lock, you're interfering with the operation of a commercial vessel. Oh, come now, Captain, Miss Granby chided me broadly. Are you so afraid of answering these charges that you'll hide behind that flimsy excuse? Miss Granby, you are on my ship. I nodded to where she stood on the ramp. You are interfering with the delivery of required spare parts. I nodded to the chandlery crew behind her. You have no legitimate interest on my vessel, and I have asked you to leave. You are interfering with the operation of a commercial vessel. Behind her, the crew chief grimaced, pulled out his calm, speaking into it briefly. Captain Wong, I'm here representing the public. We have a right to know the facts in this case. The facts are on file with orbital security, Ms. Granby. I suggest you seek them there. I want to hear from you, Captain. Please leave my vessel, Miss Granby. Are you refusing to answer my questions, Captain? Please leave my vessel, Miss Granby. A pair of orbital security joined the grinning chandlery crew and conferred briefly with the crew chief. Captain, you have a responsibility to the public to answer these charges. She all but stamped her foot. Did one of your crew beat a passenger? Miss Granby, this is my third and final request. Please leave. You are interfering with the operation of a commercial vessel. Or what, Captain? She pounced with a smirk. Will you have one of your crew come out here and beat me up? The clicking of handcuffs from behind her finally got her attention. She turned and found her cameraman in custody and a second officer standing behind her. I believe, Miss Granby, he said, that violence will not be necessary if you'll come along quietly. She whirled on me. You called security? I shook my head. No, Miss Granby, they did. I nodded at the chandlery crew. Come along, Miss Granby. Officer, I'm on legitimate business here. You have no right. In one smooth movement, he had her cuffed and started leading her down the ramp. Watch your step, Miss Granby. We don't want any unfortunate injuries here. As he cleared the ramp, he stopped and turned to me as the chandlery crew horsed the grav pallets of spares aboard. Will you be pressing charges, Captain? The crew chief answered before I could respond. I will be. He smirked at the reporter. Hello, Jess. Still raking muck? He nodded to the officer. I'll be along to the station to fill out the paperwork as soon as we get done here. He shrugged and nodded to his partner. They led the hapless pair away while we checked the shipment aboard, stacking it on the deck just outside of engineering stores. I thumbed the receipt when we cleared and offered a hand. Thanks. She was beginning to irritate me. I know the feeling, he said with a wink. Safe voyage, Captain. With that, he gathered his crew and headed back off the ship. I sealed the lock behind him and turned to find Ms. Maloney halfway down the ladder. Captain, we have a problem. She met me at the bottom of the ladder and held out her tablet. More pictures? She nodded at the screen. 
The image had a diagonal split with Ms. Maloney in the upper left and Mr. Du Bois in the bottom right. Ms. Maloney stood in the galley looking back over her shoulder, her expression an ambiguous frown. Mr. Du Bois lay insensible in the ship's auto dock. The headline emblazoned across the top read, Rough Trade. Well, that's torn it. She nodded. Oh, yeah. Chapter 61, Greenfields Orbital, March 9, 2373. By the morning of our departure, three more reporters had paid us a visit. The attention did not work entirely against us. We also picked up a few extra cubes of cargo and two more passengers, largely based on the extra attention the ship got. Over the course of our stay, I managed to get our engineering spare situation under control and worked through the rest of the items on the repair list. It was funny how empowered I felt by my new toolbox. Having some screwdrivers and a couple of wrenches and the odd pair of pliers made all the difference when dealing with simple things like replacing light panels and broken switches. I also took the opportunity to get the scrubber filters on schedule, marking half with an X on the base and leaving the others unmarked. The atmospheric mixture aboard was clean, so I left myself a calendar note to swap out the X'd ones just after jump. Chief Bailey stayed in his compartment, as nearly as I could tell. I saw him only rarely in the galley or when Ms. Maloney wanted to go ashore. On top of it all, we were no further ahead in figuring out who'd taken the pictures aboard the ship and given, or more likely, sold them to the newsies. In spite of that, after two days of puttering about, I felt a lot more confident in the ship. It would be in good shape when the 90-day note expired. Mr. Herring made it back aboard without mishap, and we briefed him on dealing with the newsies before allowing him to go ashore again. Without the financial support of new friends, he soon ran out of money and spent the last day in port helping Ms. Maloney get the compartments ready for guests. Cargo came aboard at 0900, and the first of our passengers showed up just as the handlers left the lock. Mr. J. Everett Tharp waited politely for the last of the handlers to clear the ramp before sliding up with two grav trunks, expertly maneuvering them up the ramp with greater aplomb than I could have managed. A man about my age, tanned and healthy-looking, he dressed casually in a brown leather jacket, buttoned-down shirt in pale blue, and a pair of jeans. Captain Wong? He held out his hand with an easy smile. Everett Tharp, I believe you're expecting me? I shook the offered hand and nodded. Mr. Tharp, welcome aboard. I didn't expect you for another stand or so, but welcome. I keyed the big lock closed and cut off the cold air wafting in from the docks. Thank you, Captain. Do you have room for this trunk and cargo? It's my sample case, and I don't really need it until we get into Diurnia. He pointed to one of his grav trunks. Of course, Mr. Tharp. I indicated an open corner of the hold. If you'd lock it down right there, it'll be safe enough until we get in. I directed him to stand on the lift and use the release to raise him up to the first deck. Ms. Maloney waited for him there. She waved down to me as she greeted him and escorted him back to his compartment. A blat from the lock klaxon called me back to duty, and I looked out to see a woman who might be thirty, and a girl who looked about fifteen. They had one grav trunk and looked at the lock expectantly, but they did not look like Sam and Muriel Lockhart. With an internal shrug, I opened the lock and stepped out onto the ramp. Hello, I'm Captain Wong. Can I help you? The woman smiled tentatively when she spoke. I'm Muriel, Muriel Lockhart. You have a reservation for us. I looked at the girl. Sam? Yes, Sam. Is that a problem? The girl scowled at me. Muriel interceded. My daughter, we're on our way to Diurnia. We'll come right in, folks. Miss Maitland has your compartment ready, I believe. I led them into the ship and sealed the lock behind them. We maneuvered their grav trunk up the ladder without difficulty. Looking down the passage, I saw Miss Maloney had just finished settling Mr. Tharp, and I stepped aside for her to see our newest passengers. 
Miss Maitland is our steward. She'll help you get settled. Miss Maitland, this is Muriel Lockhart and her daughter, Sam. Miss Maitland smiled and shook hands with each of them. Welcome aboard, ladies. If you'd follow me, we have a choice for you to make. She led them away and soon had them settled in the over and under bunks. Judging from the pleased noises coming from that end of the passageway, both mother and daughter found the accommodations quite satisfactory. I was about to head into the cabin when the klaxon sounded again. Ms. Arione stood in the galley door and asked, Are you expecting anyone else, Captain? No, Ms. Arione. Okay, Skipper, I'll get it. Thank you, Ms. Arione. No problem, Skipper. She trotted down the ladder and I went into my cabin. I just settled at the console when she was back at the door. Skipper, you're going to want to come out here. Something in her face caught my attention immediately. I stepped out and found an impeccably dressed woman in her middle fifties, standing at the top of the ladder, one hand pressed dramatically to the top of an impressive bosom as she worked to catch her breath. Captain? You're Captain Wong? Yes, ma'am. How can I help you? Passage? Do you have room for one more, Captain? Please say you do. Her words came out in a rush, each one tumbling on the heels of the last, and I understood why she might be breathless. Just listening was exhausting. We're bound for Diurnia, ma'am, and there's one berth left. I'll take it. She reached out and placed her hand on my forearm. Please, Captain, I must have it. Okay, sure, Ms. Barbara Hawkshaw, Captain. Thank you so much. You have no idea what a lifesaver you are. I walked her through the paperwork and booked her fare, by which time Ms. Maloney had returned. Last guest, Miss Maitland, I said. She smiled and welcomed Miss Hawkshaw aboard, leading her down the passage to the one remaining compartment. Ms. Arione watched the process with a smile on her face. "'What do you suppose is so important, Sar?' she asked, keeping her voice low. "'Hard to tell, Ms. Arione. Whatever it is, it's important to her.' I nodded in the direction of the lock. "'Would you hang out the Do Not Disturb sign, Ms. Arione? I'll file our intent to depart with traffic control.' With her usual efficiency, Ms. Maloney put lunch on the table at noon in spite of the unexpected guest— one of the advantages of soup and salad is its flexibility, and our new guests appeared to find the meal to their liking. After making introductions around the table, the brief period of awkwardness melted away as Ms. Maloney drew each passenger out. Even the reticent younger Ms. Lockhart found a kindred spirit in Ms. Arione when they learned they shared a passion for a musical group with the unlikely name of Entropy Gradient Inversion. As the meal drew to a close, I went around the table in my normal pre-departure call-out. Chief Bailey, are the tanks topped and spares lockers stocked? He spared me a curious look, but nodded. Oh, aye, Captain. Fuel and water aboard, see if they're not. Auxiliaries warmed and sails ready? Kickers are hot, Captain? You know they are. Sails on safety standby, but they'll go up when you're ready, see if they don't. Miss Maitland, are we fixed for stores with sufficient supplies for our journey? We are, Captain. Freezers are stocked and larders are full. Well, I've finished the astrogation updates, and our flight plan is on file, along with manifests and clearances. I smiled around the table at the crew and passengers alike. If nobody has any objections, I'd rather like to see someplace else. The crew chuckled, and even the elder Ms. Lockhart seemed to be enjoying the floor show. I'll call for navigation stations at 1500. Crew will report to duty stations, and I'll ask our guests to relax in their bunks until I set normal watch. It only takes about a half a stand or so to clear the local space. If you need to move about, please do so, but try to stay seated or on your bunks as much as possible to avoid being tossed about. Muriel Lockhart looked concerned. Should we strap in, Captain? I smiled in a way that I hoped was reassuring. I don't think that will be necessary, Miss Lockhart. Miss Hawkshaw mumbled something that sounded like a wistful, oh, too bad, then looked around the table in wide-eyed innocence. Miss Arione did a very credible job of stifling her chuckle. Any other questions? I looked around from face to face and got a series of small head shakes. 
Then let's clear away mess and get ready for space. I stood and bust my dirty, stacking dishes and glassware in the dishwasher. It pleased me to see everybody, crew and passenger alike, follow suit. The crew didn't surprise me. We'd sailed enough that they were pretty well used to it. But the passengers pitched in with good humor, and soon Ms. Maloney was left with only a few serving dishes and an amused expression. "'Something funny, Miss Maitland?' I asked softly. "'It should be an interesting trip, Captain.' She turned her head, casually glancing to where Ms. Hawkshaw flirted shamelessly with Mr. Herring. "'Indeed, Miss Maitland. Do you suppose I should go to Mr. Herring's assistance?' She snorted and looked back at me. "'Only if you want her chasing you, Sar. Unlike our last little difficulty, it doesn't appear that the attention is at all unwelcome.' I looked again and realized that our junior decky flirted back. "'Interesting is probably an understatement, Miss Maitland.' She chuckled softly, and I thought a bit evilly, as she went back to work on the cooking pots. I just shook my head and took a fresh cup of coffee up to the bridge to double-check my numbers. Thanks for listening to Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is Larry O'Gaff, a traditional tune performed by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad and is used with permission of the artist. You can find this and other works by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information about the book, the author, and the golden age of the Solar Clipper, visit www.solarclipper.com.